This is Our American Stories, and today we bring you our regular series called What Happens When? A series that tells the stories of what happens when we all interact with our healthcare system. And it's led by our chief health editor, Jim Glassman. listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. A spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But the title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good, patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad, the system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how all the payments work. The ugly, Well, there's a little bit too much of that in this episode, but it's not our fault. This What Happens When episode is what happens when big bureaucracies ruin your day. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. Take it away, Alex. I reached out to a top doctor at a major medical facility, and he really wanted to talk with me about this topic, just not on the record. You'll see why. He insisted he speak anonymously, and incredibly, he spoke a whole page at a time. One of the big things that's happening in healthcare now that's really plaguing hospitals is trying to figure out who's supposed to be an inpatient and who's supposed to be an observation patient. Now, if you were just laying in a bed, you would have no idea whether you were an inpatient or an observation patient. This is a totally uh, bookkeeping thing. But it turns out, like way back in the beginning of government intervention into some of the healthcare economics, they set up two funds. One was to pay for outpatients. Folks who were staying at a hospital for just a little while. And one was to pay for inpatients. Folks staying for a while. And at some point, someone said, gee, wouldn't it be nice with inpatients if we could have some really streamlined way? If someone came in, you weren't really sure if they were sick or not, you weren't really sure if they needed to be admitted or not, but they were a little too sick to go home, and you could just keep them for a short period of time, maybe half a day or something like that. You could observe them, and you could see if they needed to be inpatient or or outpatient, and uh, that would be a good thing. So they called that observation care. Well, they decided to say that's actually outpatient care. So that came out of the outpatient bucket of funds. And hospitals weren't sure who to put into which bucket. So the government, rather than looking at the whole basic problem, which was this arbitrary definition that they had put in place, said, well, we're going to put in another rule, which says that anyone who's on this certain list of diagnoses called the inpatient-only list, you can't make observation. They have to be inpatient. So, okay, list changes all the time. you got to make sure you keep track of that list. And everyone said, well, tell them, we'll just make them all inpatient. You know, we get paid a little more for the inpatient anyway. And the government said, well, that's, that's not right because, you know, we still want to use this observation status. So we're going to set up a rule that says anyone who's in less than two overnights, they should have been an observation. And then the questions kept coming up and, you know, when was it you had to determine if it looked like a patient was going to have to stay less than two nights, 
but you actually made a mistake and they stayed greater than two nights or the other way around. You know, what was the rule for that? So then they had to come up with all sorts of rules about what needed to be documented on the history when you first came in. So now you have to be very careful to make sure you document all of this, which really doesn't have anything to do with medical care. Confused yet? Or maybe you're just appreciative that you don't have to deal with as much pointless paperwork as this guy. He continued. They, they set up a rule which said a person who is coming in under observation, they're an outpatient. So all their drugs that could be outpatient drugs should only be paid for in the outpatient way. So if a person comes in with asthma, they might need albuterol to help open up their lungs. Well, that's something you can get as an outpatient. That's a very inexpensive drug. And in the old days, that just would have been paid for for these observation patients. But the government now said, well, no, if you're observation, you're really outpatient. We shouldn't be paying for inpatient albuterol. You should only be getting outpatient albuterol. You should somehow go to the CBS and get your own. Or if you buy it from the hospital, you're going to have to pay for it. Well, of course, when a hospital sells you something, they don't sell it at the cheap CBS price. They have it all marked up, again, because of sort of arbitrary government regulations. So you might be paying, instead of you know tens of dollars, you might be paying hundreds of dollars for this albuterol, which no one would deny it was an important part of your care. If you weren't given it, you would potentially die, and yet all of a sudden you've got people who now have to pay for this medicine, which if they happen to stay an extra day, all of a sudden they're inpatient, they don't have to pay for it. You know, it's completely insane. Same drugs from the same drug company, but because of the government and hospital bureaucracy, we the patients can be stuck, financially stuck, with paying several times more than the CVS price because we're literally stuck in the hospital and can't get to CBS. Our anonymous friend continued. They put in something called the three inpatient stay rule, which says that a patient has to be in three inpatient days before they can go to a skilled nursing facility. Well, maybe a patient's ready before three days. Maybe at three days they're still sick as hell, and they aren't ready. You know, who came up with this rule of just three days? And then to make it worse, the rule when it was written said inpatient days. They didn't put in the statement or observation days. So if you bring a patient in for like two observation days and then change them to inpatient and it's one inpatient day, that's only one day. So they have to stay another two days, even though you've been watching them three days, which was the whole point of the rule. And because the government made a decision at one point not to include those observation days, they'll never go back and change that. It's just maddening. Rule number one for these guys. Never admit being wrong. Can you imagine being a patient and being told that you have to stay in the hospital for two more days just to comply with a government rule? The only reason. How insane and expensive. Personally for patients, and you might be surprised for literally all of us. Every day, we as taxpayers are paying for these unnecessary costs of Medicare patients with this exact story that they don't want either. And when we come back, more stories in our What Happens When series. And great reporting as always, Alex. We've got a lot more, and we love that this doctor joined us. And how remarkable that he wouldn't give his last name. And we're looking for more stories like that here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our What Happens When feature on the government's creation of so-called observation care in hospitals. We've spoken with a doctor on the front lines of this craziness, and now we'll speak with a family member of a patient who's gone through this, his daughter. I'm Debbie Sorensen, and I'm from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. This is regarding my father, Jim Toddy, also from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. He was a police officer for 33 years here. I was administrative secretary for many years, and the last few years my main focus in life was taking care of my dad. He had a lot of health ailments since this whole thing happened. My father had a real bad case of shingles around his chest and he couldn't get rid of the pain and we went everywhere and tried everything for about a year and exhausted every possibility including nerve blocks, every kind of drug from all over the United States and nothing helped. We don't think of shingles as something very serious. I had it, and one-third of the country will get it at some point in their lives. It's basically chicken pox coming back for a second round. And for most like me, it goes away after a few days. But as folks get older, apparently they're more likely to develop long-term pain as a complication of shingles. Jim was one of those people. And one of his doctors recommended installing a temporary spinal cord stimulator which delivers mild electrical stimulation to the nerves along the spinal cord, blocking out and masking nerve activity, and thereby minimizing the sensation of pain reaching the brain, which is pretty incredible. And each year, around 14,000 patients worldwide will have one implanted. So he had a temporary one implanted here in Oshkosh, and it went great. It's the first time he didn't have pain for a year. And then that doctor suggested going to a Milwaukee facility medical center that had more expertise in doing the permanent spinal cord stimulators. So on March 6th of 2013, he went to that hospital. Debbie calls it that hospital throughout our interview, not wanting to publicly identify them and have them attack her for what happened next. It was supposed to be an hour and a half surgery. And um, because of his age, he was 84 at the time, they were going to keep him overnight. And they did keep him overnight. And um, he began deteriorating and totally paralyzed from the chest down. When I talked to the physician assistant right away at 8 o'clock the next morning and said to him, he said, we're, we know all about it, we're all over it. We're doing a CT scan, and I'd already done some research on my own, and from the hardware that they put in him, I knew that it was going to be difficult to see that area. So I asked him, I didn't tell him I did all the research, but uh, asked him if he could see that area, and he assured me they could, and they were all over it, and they knew how bad he was, and that they'd take care of it. So it was a few hours later, um, they did take him down, for the CT scan. A few hours later, someone pointed out this physician's assistant to me going down the hall. So I kind of chased after him and uh, said who I was and my dad. And I said, the nurse told me that the CT scan was fine. And I said, how can that be? He's paralyzed from his chest down. He can't be fine. No, no, he's fine. And he just tried to 
shoo me off and keep on going. And I said, wait a minute, I have a couple questions for you. Can you please tell me, can you see that area to know that there isn't swelling or something? Um, Because he had said to me on the phone early that morning that they thought he had a hematoma, I guess, like a, a blood clot or whatever that builds up or something like that. I actually don't know what it is, but pushing on the spinal cord, which is making him paralyzed. And that's what they thought they would probably see on the CT scan. But he said they didn't. And I said, and could you see the area nicely with a CT scan? Oh, yeah. He said he's fine. There's nothing wrong with him. I said, then why can't he walk? He'll be fine. Don't worry. And off he went. At one point, Debbie and Jim asked for his medical records, and the hospital said that it was against their policy to provide them, even though they were his. He couldn't have them until he left the hospital. And when he did, the CT scan results said that they could not see the area where he was paralyzed. This physician assistant had directly lied to her face. Put aside the hospital's atrocious handling of the situation for a moment. How did this even happen? How did her dad get paralyzed from a procedure that's performed 14,000 times a year? Well, we're not entirely sure how it happened because we weren't getting any accurate information from the hospital. Uh, From what I was told from a very nice RN that was working was that... um, Sometimes when these surgeries are performed, and his wasn't performed at all in the manner in which they said it was, he was supposed to have like two one-and-a-half-inch incisions, one for the stimulator and one for the battery pack, and he pretty much had an incision most all the way down his spine, and um, a very, not so large, but bigger than what they said for the battery pack. And from what the RN was telling me that sometimes you get swelling after the surgery, from the incision, from the stimulator, that it can press onto your um, spinal column and onto your spinal nerves there and cause paralysis. It can be temporary or permanent. Researchers at Duke University Medical Center found that nearly one out of every 100 spinal cord stimulator patients experience some degree of spinal cord or spinal nerve damage, resulting in injuries ranging from muscle weakness to complete paraplegia. I asked Debbie if she saw the incision at the time, and if so, what was her reaction to it? Oh yes, I saw the incision. When they took the bandages off the next morning, I was quite surprised by the size of them. And within maybe about 30 minutes after taking off the bandages, they, he was that was the next morning. He wasn't paralyzed yet. They had him get up, and, and he had been walking and everything after the surgery and going up and down the hall. And um, anyway, after they took the bandages off, they went, walked him over, put him in a chair to eat, and put him right against the high-back vinyl medical facility chair, typical in a patient's room, with his brand-new, somewhat open, awful-looking incision and him right in the chair against it with a bare incision and I just kind of went oh should you put something behind him that's a brand new incision there on, on a dirty chair and the nurse said oh yeah Jim sit forward and he said I can't I'm stuck and um it kind of all went downhill after that 
So then I was Googling and trying to find out what was going on with him because no one was forthcoming with any information for us. We actually never saw his doctor. He never came out after my dad's surgery, even though he assured us he would. The second night after my father's surgery, when he deteriorated to the point where he couldn't walk at all, two assistants needed to lift him out of bed and carry him to a chair. And I said, well, somebody needs to look at him. So she had put a request in to have him seen by neurology. And we waited hours and no one came and and she would update us. And and it was a resident that was coming and that he was in the emergency room and delayed. And and he finally came, I think it was about 10 o'clock that night after waiting, I believe it was about six hours. And he came in and uh, looked and talked at my dad and said, well, you're old, you should be living in a nursing home at your age. And um, we just looked at him. I said, what do you mean he should be living in a nursing home? I said, he drives, he grocery shops, he goes to casinos. Why should he be living in a nursing home? Well, at your age, 84, you should be living in a nursing home. And then he said, and you need to get out of here as fast as you can or you're going to get sicker in here. He said, this is a place where you pick up stuff and get worse. He said, so I recommend you getting out as soon as you can. And I was just flabbergasted. I, I just, I couldn't believe what he said. He went out of the room and my father and I just looked at each other like, what, what was that about? What just happened? And when the nurse came in, by that time, I was crying. I was very upset. And I said, I don't believe what this doctor just said to my dad. And she just shook her head. I mean, she really couldn't address it at all in her position. And tragically, this is just the beginning of the story. After the break, we'll hear how the government-created classification of observation care plays directly into Jim and Debbie's already horrific story. This is Our American Stories, What Happens When, our regular series continues, and man, this one just keeps getting worse. stories and we continue with Debbie Sorensen and my goodness you can hear the pain in her voice but also the increasing aggravation as a daughter tries to do best by her dad in a terrible situation and here she dives into how the observation care classification affected her dad and therefore her. It was about in those three days after his surgery that uh, they told us he was going to have to go to a rehab facility because he obviously couldn't walk or function very well and that he was going to have to pay that out of pocket because he didn't have a three-day qualifying stay for Medicare in the hospital. We had no idea what they meant by a three-day qualifying stay. We had never heard of it before. so. 
I began asking lots of questions and what is the three-day qualifying stay and why doesn't he have it and and um, she told me it was because they had submitted it to Medicare and Medicare turned down his stay as an inpatient stay and I believed her I didn't know anything different I had no idea what she was really talking about and the next day um, I made arrangements for him at a facility here in Oshkosh for rehabbing and a different social worker talked to me that day I gave her all the information for the facility and then I said to her I don't understand why Medicare is turning him down to be an inpatient here if that's what he needs to qualify for the state he's paralyzed from his chest down how can you be not considered to be very ill to be an inpatient and she said well we've submitted it twice to Medicare and they've turned us down both times and I said well who are you talking to at Medicare I don't understand why this is happening and she said well that's what their guidelines are and there's nothing we can do about it so then the next day the third day I talked to a different social worker and she said that the same thing Medicare has turned them down they aren't going to submit it again and that he would have to go to this rehab facility later that afternoon I talked with another social worker on the floor and I said can you please submit this to Medicare again and she said no we've done it she said three times now and they've turned us down every time the hospital never told Debbie and her father that they labeled him as outpatient under observation care even though their determination would directly impact him Instead of Medicare paying for his rehab, a Medicare program he paid into all of his working life, he'd have to pay for it out of pocket. In fact, the hospital told them earlier that the opposite was true. So I pulled out the documentation from the day he was admitted for his surgery, which gave a record to call um, in Madison for patient rights, for Medicare patient rights as an inpatient. And he had to sign that form before they did surgery. Said right on there he was an inpatient. They later changed his status without telling him. Not getting straight answers from the hospital, Debbie went elsewhere for them. So then I went and I called Medicare myself. My first time ever talking to Medicare. And my father was with me so he could give permission for me to talk to them. And I asked them about turning him down to be an inpatient. And they said they've never been contacted by this medical facility. And I said, but they told me that they contacted you three times and you've turned him down. And they said, we don't make that determination. The doctor makes it. Talk to his doctor and he should admit him as an inpatient. And so I went back to the same social worker and I said to her, I said, you've never called Medicare. I just called them myself. And she started kind of shuffling and looking caught in her lie. And I said, you've never called them. I said, I just talked to them. What, what are you, why are you telling me this? Because that's not true. And she said, well, we actually send his records to an off-site facility. And they examine the records and go through them. And they've determined that he is not ill enough to be an inpatient. And I said, how can he not be ill enough when he's paralyzed? And she said, well, that's what they've determined three times. I said, but you told me you were calling Medicare. Well, it's actually an off-site facility that determines this. Given Debbie was willing to go the length of calling Medicare herself, did she also call this off-site company that made the Medicare determination for the hospital? No, 
have no idea where they are or who they are, they wouldn't give me that information. Truly faceless, nameless bureaucrats in charge of your health care. And then the hospital kicked them out. They said they would block his discharge until he got straightened out. And they called me back a short time later and said, I'm sorry, we can't block his discharge. He's an outpatient and he has no privileges or rights at this hospital as an outpatient. And I said, I'm totally confused on this. He's been here for seven days now and he has no rights. And she said, no, he's an outpatient under observation, so he has no rights. He had no rights and he had no help on the way out. There was nothing I could do. He had to leave and no one would assist me. And so I had to drive my partially paralyzed father all the way from Milwaukee to Oshkosh where we live. It's about an hour and a half drive and I took him right to the nursing rehab facility. And um, it was a scary drive because if something would have happened, I I couldn't have handled him or anything. And it was just very, very scary. They then arrive to the nursing facility that they'll be paying for. He wrote a very sizable check, you know, for the the down payment or whatever for the upcoming nursing facility. Over $8,000. So he had, you know, luckily he had the money to be able to do that. And, you know, sadly, a lot of people don't. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure what you do then. Her dad turned out to be fortunate that he had a supplemental insurance policy which covered the majority of the costs, but he didn't know that when he wrote the big down payment. He found out over six months later, and he still had to pay $1,200 out of pocket. This story still isn't over. Jim was home from the nursing facility, but he still needed medical attention Debbie told me. Yes, that was totally hands off. They didn't even even the urologist in town would not let my dad go to him for follow-on care because of everything that happened badly in Milwaukee. They wouldn't even see him. He had to go back to Milwaukee to the same medical facility that Debbie won't name. That was a tough trip to take back there when we had absolutely no inclination to go back to Milwaukee for anything and we had to nobody would see him up here why wouldn't they I believe it's because of everything that happened at the Milwaukee facility was not done according to what the plan was and he had such severe complications from it that I suppose they could tell from the situation that it could be some type of a legal issue at that at some point that maybe they didn't want to get involved in. And when we come back, the final portion of Jim Toddy's story, and I know you're angry because I am too, and so many of us experience these complications, this senseless encounter with bureaucracy in our hospitals and in our insurance companies too. We've got a story to tell you soon about my own wife's encounter with her insurance company as it relates to Botox Botox injections and payment paid, and then suddenly for no reason whatsoever, no more payments for her headaches. And Botox is a miracle drug for people with migraines. 
and we can afford to pay out of pocket. But for the average person, uh, suddenly to be denied by an insurance company and go through the appeals process, we're going to have a story for you next in the next few weeks about that. But when we come back, the final portion of Jim Toddy's story told by his daughter, Debbie, and we'll be joined by Jim Glassman, our health editor here at Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our final installment of our What Happens When series. And we continue with our great reporting here by Alex Cortez, who does a great job with all of these pieces. And more, well, more from this unfortunate sequence of events. Take it away. One local doctor finally agreed to help Jim when the battery for his spinal cord stimulator wasn't working. They didn't put it where they were supposed to in my dad, and being elderly is really thin skin, and so it was always overheating when we try to recharge it, and it wouldn't recharge, it was shut off. And so we tried putting washcloths in, putting padding in, sitting in different chairs with different ventilation in the chairs, or putting ice on his skin first before, I mean, we tried. You would believe what we went through, trying everything we could think of and what they suggested to us to try to get this battery to recharge because if it didn't recharge my dad had horrible pain back again like the shingles pain and so we went through months of that and then they finally asked us from the simulator company if we please just go get an x-ray of it to see what's wrong with it if it's at an angle or whatever and so that's all I asked for this neurology group to do is to just please only take an x-ray. You don't have to look at him, examine him, or do anything. If you would just please do the x-ray. And um, then someone did call me back uh, a while later and said that they agreed one of the neurologists would see him. And when he saw my dad, he was just just unbelievable. I've, I've never seen anybody butchered like, like you've been butchered, Jim. We're absolutely going to help you here. I've never seen anything like this. But I wouldn't testify to that, he said. And when Jim received Medicare's summary of benefits paperwork for his stay at the hospital, they filed an appeal with Medicare that he should be listed as inpatient. They decided to officially fight the hospital. As we progressed through the Medicare appeal system, appeal after appeal after appeal, that we kept losing. Um, we then found out when we got to the, I believe it's the third or fourth appeal that you, you go before an administrative law judge on a telephone conference and um, hearing, and we did that. And on that phone call were eight upper echelon folks from the hospital on one side and just Debbie and her father on the other. It was intimidating. But they had a bigger problem on their hands. Somehow, the subject of the hearing went from his classification as inpatient or outpatient 
to whether he should have had to pay for his drugs while in the hospital, which never was what their appeal was about. It was never once mentioned in their appeals. So how in the world did that suddenly become the topic of the administrative law hearing? I have no idea how it happened. Want to take a guess? I'd like to know how it happened. They're on this telephone hearing, and Debbie recounts the judge saying this. It's the worst case he'd ever seen in all of his years and thousands of cases, and requested them several times to fix this and make it better. And, and um, when, when they said about the reason my father was there so long is because he didn't have a place to go, that I hadn't found a facility for him to go to, and the judge didn't he didn't buy that and he said i just can't imagine he said in a medical facility your size that there's not a doctor in there somewhere that would look at this man in his state paralyzed with how his wounds look and not say this man is very sick and he needs to be made an inpatient here he said i can't believe that there was one doctor in your facility who could see what this man was going through and he said i I just can't believe that And the judge was just so much in our favor that day, and he was so empathetic to what my father had gone through, but he just, he kept apologizing that he he couldn't do anything about it because his hands were tied. Because the subject of the hearing was changed to be about Jim's drugs, the judge wasn't legally allowed to rule on his classification as inpatient or outpatient. If the judge couldn't rectify an injustice as he saw it, who could? And you might be surprised by Debbie and Jim's reaction to all of this. My father and I were ecstatic because finally there was vindication there. Even though my dad didn't win, we really kind of did win because the judge really got on this medical facility and these seven or eight people in the upper echelon of the management there. Jim and Debbie would file more Medicare appeals and would lose. And Debbie would face a greater loss. Going through this process now for almost four years next month, it would be for my father um, to four years since he had the surgery. Um, Sadly, and unfortunately, my father passed away 11 months ago. And I'm still battling this for him because it was so important to him. And not important to him because of any conceptions of this world. We were fighting this thing. It wasn't because of the money. It was because it was wrong. It was wrong what they did to my dad. It was wrong the information that they gave us. It was wrong how it was processed. It was wrong how we went through all of the appeals and never got notification within the 60 days and all this time they were turning us down because it was about self-administered drugs they said and not the inpatient stay and it was wrong that the judge who handled the administrative law judge hearing for us that he couldn't rule on what it really was what's perhaps most wrong is that too many seniors don't have advocates in their lives, like Debbie, making it easier for them to be taken advantage of by big, 
uphold bureaucracies. Thankfully, in 2017, it became the law of the land that hospitals have to tell patients if they are classified under observation care. It shouldn't have required a law. And what a story. Great job, as always, Alex, on these pieces. And I know that if you have your stories, and I know you do listening, send them to us. We will track them down. Because as you notice, these stories are coming from patients. They're coming from real-life doctors. And if you want to hide your last name, we get it. We really get it. If you're a doctor, share with us. If you're inside the healthcare system, an insurance company, share it with us. At a hospital, a nurse, share it with us. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Does anything here shock you? Well, unfortunately not. Uh, you know, there is a, there's a lot of incompetence in hospitals. Uh, there's a lot of bureaucratic rigidity, and there's a lot of government rules that don't make any sense. So, unfortunately, there are a lot of stories like this. Uh, you know, there are a lot of good stories as well, but I, I really congratulate you. This is, uh, this is what happens in many hospitals, unfortunately. And, and you know, Jim, these, these, these bureaucratic rules, you don't feel the patient at the center of any of this stuff. And, and yeah, this is what's that, so frustrating. Yeah, that is what's frustrating. I mean, it's, it's it, and, you know, some of that, I mean, you, you heard in the story just the kind of insensitivity of some of the doctors and nurses uh, who, you know, face with uh, these problems that we just, we just talked about, this bureaucratic rigidity. I mean, they can still be human beings, you know. They can still act like a human being. And when people are in, in hospitals, they and their families are in a, in a state of real distress, and um, often you, you get that kind of reaction, the reaction of just tremendous insensitivity, and it's, and it's really unfortunate. No doubt. And i got to say, this, this bureaucracy must wear on the spirits of some doctors and some nurses too, Jim. Yes. I mean, they got a lot of There's boxes no to check off, and it can wear you down. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, there, there's some bigger issues here as well that I'd like to touch on if I can. You bet. Um, first of all, you know, hospitals uh, represent by far the largest cost in the healthcare system. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think, oh, it, it must be pharmaceuticals. But actually, no. Uh, hospitals are spending on hospitals is three times spending on, on uh, pharmaceuticals. It's a big, big number. It's over a trillion dollars a year. Um, the second thing is that, that uh, remarkably enough, the number of hospital beds in the United States has been declining uh, dramatically. 1975, there were 4.6 beds per thousand population. Today, it's 2.5. And this decline is continuing in a, in a pretty dramatic way. Occupancy rates are declining. The number of days people spend in the, in the hospital are declining. And you would think, if that's true, that these hospitals will be spending less. They'd be getting, maybe they're getting more efficient, right? In any other business, that's what people would say. But in fact, the cost, the spending in these hospitals continues to rise. And that's something I think that is a public policy issue that people in, in Washington and around the states ought to take a deep look at because that's where, that's where the biggest price increases are happening the biggest spending increases in the, in the healthcare system. And the third point I, I just wanted to make, and it was touched on in the, in the story there, is that drugs administered in hospitals are hugely expensive. They're much more expensive. They cost the patients, cost the insurance companies much more than they do when they are simply dispensed by, uh, by a, a drugstore. 
And you got to ask yourself, why is that? What's going on here? Are the hospitals marking these drugs up at ridiculous levels? A lot of people believe that they are. So I, need, I think we need to take a, a close look at that from a policy point of view, because that's really hurting a lot of people. And we will, Jim, and this is a continuing series. And I don't think we're going to make it end, because it's such a big part of our lives. Thanks so much, as always, for bringing us these reports. My pleasure. You bet. This is Lee Habib, Debbie Sorensen's story, her dad, Jim Toddy's story. Here on our American Story series, What Happens When. And this is our American stories. And we love to tell stories of people performing random acts of kindness. We often have that segment here on our show. And very often it's produced and wrapped up and narrated. But we felt like this story needed more personal attention. Not that the others aren't personal, but this one, we just wanted to talk to the parties and have you hear this story yourselves from them. And Diage Rome suffers from cerebral palsy, a movement condition that makes it very hard for her to walk on her own. So six fraternity brothers from the University of Central Arkansas decided to be her legs for a day. They carried her up a thousand-foot mountain. They each took turns giving her piggyback rides until they got to the top. Diage is here with us today to talk about this experience and also one of the brothers, one of those fraternity brothers, Benji Richards. Thank you both for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. You're so welcome, man. You bet. And Diaja, let's start with you. Um, you obviously wanted to see the top of this mountain. You wanted to get to the top. Why did you want to do that and talk about what it, what it felt like to get this offer from these from these fraternity boys? You know, I just seen all the pictures. You know, the people locally around um, Arkansas and Conway. I've just seen all the pictures on Instagram, you know, Facebook, everybody, the joys of getting to the top, you know. That was something I wanted to do. Um, And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, nothing's going to stop me from from doing this. And something that I want to do, just because I have a disability doesn't mean that I can't do something that everybody else does. And just to get... The opportunity from these guys to climb this mountain, I was overjoyed. I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, let's do it. Did you know these uh, fraternity brothers? Yes. Um, actually, um, my um, I met them through, like, a wiffle ball tournament that we had. Um, it was pretty cool. Um, in the middle, like, um... I'm in the middle of the team with them, and we just played softball, and uh, that was how we met. And I, of course, I had seen them around campus and things like that. So I was just like, "Yeah, man, I already know these guys, and I've developed some trust. So why not? Let's do it." Yeah, you got to have some trust in somebody who's carrying you up a mountain, Diaja. And yeah, uh, Benji, right. Benji, talk about uh, how you had come to know Diaja. Uh, and talk a bit about uh, your fraternity as well 
and the brothers and how this idea came to fruition? Um, well, we, like they all just said, we met her through um, with, uh, some intramurals, uh, a co-rec wiffle ball tournament we had on our campus. Um, and so our fraternity was teamed up with her sorority. And um, we uh, and Deandre was actually on our team, and so she pulled up in her wheelchair and was even batting uh, on the team. So that that's how we actually met her, and so we we're all kind of impressed. We're like, okay, you know, like she's not going to let anything stop her. Um, now, how the idea came about is we had actually seen a chapter for a different fraternity do this up in the Northeast. Um, there was a post that had been shared where they had a brother that also had. Um, cerebral palsy, and they carried him. And I can't remember if the idea started with myself or um, Cesar Ramirez, but one of us was just like, hey, what if we did this? And then uh, I remember pushing the idea to um, some of the members that I knew in her sorority, and eventually just they got the baby D, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. So we set up a time to go. And we love doing these segments because, well, the media loves to cast millennials in a certain light, young people in a certain light. And I live in a college town. I've never been more impressed by a generation. And I hate seeing older people looking at younger people and saying, ah, back when we were better kids, life was better, and you all stink. I mean, that's just what older people always do to younger people. But I've witnessed quite the opposite. And the same with fraternities, who especially after that terrible UVA story at the Rolling Stone sort of cast all fraternities as just, well, something they're not. And talk a little bit about... Uh, Diaja, the, your experience with this fraternity and these brothers, because my goodness, what a story. And how did, how did it make you feel? And then how did you set about going to do this, Diaja? Um, it made me feel awesome, you know, just that um, a group of guys, you know, just wanted to do this for me out of, out of the compassion of their hearts. You know, it's, um, I was, I posted on Facebook, Yesterday, I was like, it's the smallest things in life um, that make individuals happy and bring about the greatest amounts of happiness. <laughs> so just for these guys to, like, you know, spend some time out of their day to actually, you know, help this little, this little goal of mine, this little dream of mine to come true and, you know, um, give away some, um, some sweat and some muscle. <laughs> to do this for me, it was just awesome. I can't words can't even describe. When I got to the top, I was like, "Wow!" And Benji, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game up there. It is, and you know, you said something so wonderful, and that is, in the end, it's something we try and talk about regularly on this show. If you want to really go after social justice in this country, do something really radical. Help a total stranger. Do something wonderful and beautiful for another person. And if we all did that every day, we would have social justice coming at us so darn fast. So darn fast in every way, shape, and form. Benji, talk about how hard it was, or not hard it was, to enlist a bunch of guys to do this. Give me just a short answer here. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and then talk about the actual walk. Um, honestly, it was really simple. I just mentioned to a few of the guys, and they said, let's do it. Uh, there wasn't really any challenge to it. Um, so I was like, hey, we're going to carry Deaja uh, up this mountain. They're like, all right, let's go. Just tell me in time. Well, hold that thought. And by the way, that's why I knew it would be a short answer, because that's the American spirit, frankly. There's no committees. There's no grand Cuba calling the shots. A couple of guys go, hey, let's help this beautiful young lady. Let's let her live her dream. And you just went and did it. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a fraternity brother and a sorority sister, and these brothers and sisters coming together to achieve a dream. Well, actually, a whole bunch of dreams, actually. Because when we live other people's dreams, through them and with them, we live our own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. We're talking to Benji Richards and Diaz Romes. And this is a story from the University of Central Arkansas. A young lady with cerebral palsy wanted to climb a mountaintop. And some fraternity brothers said, what the heck, let's do this. And so they did it. And Benji, I want to go to you. First of all, what's the name of your fraternity? Give a shout out to the fraternity. I know that matters a lot to y'all. And then what did you, what did you do? Talk about what steps you took and then talk about this climb. Um, well, I'm part of Phi Gamma Delta, or uh, Fiji, um, as we're commonly known as, um, at University of Central Arkansas. And um, in terms of the steps that we took to make it happen, um, really, we, we set a time and a date to go and meet there, and like I collected a few of the guys. Um, the only really outside planning we did was we spent a lot of time discussing how we were going to carry Diaja. Um there was, that was an interesting discussion. We went through different things about trying to figure out how to, like, bring her to our back and finally ended up settling on just, we'll just piggyback ride her the entire way up. So, or give her a piggyback ride the entire way up. And so what did you do? Switch switch up? Just go from guy to guy? How did you do it? Um, yeah, so we would just, uh, I think uh, I took the first leg and you just start going right up the mountain. Um, and then... Honestly, a lot of us were football players, so this kind of was similar to us, as if we were just doing, we were back in uh, the football team, just working out, doing lunges, but after a while, we would, you know, kind of wear out and need a break. We would find, uh, like, a tall, standing rock that we could set her on, where we wouldn't have to squat down and set her on the ground, and then we would just kind of trade her around like that. And so, you you had how many fellas with you on this walk? I want to, I want to say about six. About six. And again, all members of Fiji as well, correct? Yeah. Great. And Diaja, so you, you, get the, you get the call from these guys, and then you realize you're going to be piggybacked up a mountain. Were you a little worried at first? Um, honestly, um, just the type of person I am, I was like, nah, man, um, I'm not worried at all. Of course, there were a couple times where I was like, Oh crap! I might like we might go down, but we're going down together. Yep, so, you're going down together. <laughs> That's some great. of the rocks were, were slippery, but I was like, no man, we're a team. We got this. If if one goes down, we all go down. And and let's talk about as you're going up that mountain and you're getting up to the top. Uh, talk about that moment when you get to the top of the mountain, Diasha. Uh, we were about a couple feet away from the top, and I was I was getting anxious. I was like. Man, is it really like the pictures? Like, is everybody just hyping this up for no reason? 
But um, when we got to the top, you know, it was it was pretty hot because we we um, started coming up in the middle of the day, but um, and all sweating and stuff. But I was like, wow, the sky is like limitless up here. I feel like I can literally do anything from the top of this mountain. I could scream at the top of my lungs and like nobody, like the sky was listening. You know, it's kind of like when land meets the sky, you didn't, you didn't really know where the, um, the line was drawn. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You have, and if you could, we'd love to have you send a, a, I'm sure you took some pictures, send them to our team here and we'll post them up on the website. Uh, because we can't wait to see them. And so, Benji, you, you, you get up to the top of the mountain. You've never climbed a mountain with a person on your back before. How did it make you feel? Because, I, I, you know, we have the deep feeling on this show that when you do well for others, uh, it, it, it makes you feel better than doing for yourself. Yeah, uh, it was definitely um, pretty exhilarating. Uh, it was really rewarding um, to get her all the way up there. She was really excited. We were a little tired, um, honestly, but, uh, you know, getting up there, you kind of, we hit our second wind. We got that sec- uh, that rush of energy because um, Daza was so um, excited to be up there. And, you know, she you, you're listening to her talk about what it was like and trying to describe it. And that, you can imagine that her physical reaction of her just being like, oh, look at all this. It's so cool. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a very rewarding experience being able to get her up there. Now, I heard you guys are planning to do this again. Yes, so we've we've actually already taken her on two trips since. Um, we were trying to plan one this December, but uh, everyone's back home, so it made it a little difficult. Um, but we actually went to Petty Jean State Park, um, and that's a park here that has a, a waterfall. Um, and <laughs> we actually got her in the waterfall because she said she wanted to be in it. So that was, it involved um, two of us putting her in a chair and swimming her across the pool to get her to the waterfall. Um, and then we took her to Mount Magazine and we hiked her up to the highest or the tallest elevation um, in the state of Arkansas also. Oh, so you got yourself a real hiking partner there, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and uh, Diaja, for all the folks who, who and we, we do this often here on the show, talk about folks with disabilities, because we, we, we think and deeply believe that all people are children of God and that, well, you know, there's nothing anyone can, can or can't do except what's in their own mind. Talk to all the folks listening to may have, who may have relatives who have cerebral palsy or suffer from some other, uh, 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 some other uh, calamity that occurred early in their life, but that they overcame, that they overcame. Talk, about them, talk to them directly about that, Diaja, if you could. Yeah, you guys, it can be hard sometimes, you know, um, having a disability and getting um, stereotyped, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. Well, I'm living, breathing proof um, that they, the disabled are indeed able and can achieve great things if you just put your mind to it and, you know, grit and bear it and get down and actually... Do what you want to do. Put those people wrong and, um, you know, just have fun. Um, you know, having a disability has its ups, has its downs. But at the end of the day, you just have to believe that you really want to do something and have the diligence to get it done and have fun, you know. 
it's all about the happiness in life and getting um, getting as much of it as you can out of life. I mean, because life is short. You can't really wait around um, for someone to do something for you. you got to get out and do it if you really want it. Um, just go for it, man. Yeah, we think here and we often bump into what I call the bigotry of low expectations. And that is the second somebody has some kind of problem, we set the bar lower on those people. And that's the worst thing to do to folks. Um, and you have set the bar high on yourself, Diaja. And I'm so happy that you not only not see yourself as a victim, but that you are going to live a beautiful and valuable life. And Benji... Talk about what this has done for the fraternity uh, and what it's done for you personally. I, I'd, I'd love to get that, that angle of this story. Um, I definitely think for the fraternity, it became a point of pride. Um, different guys have been involved in everything. Um, I know, for example, when we did the Pettyjean trip and a bunch of guys realized they couldn't get off work to make it, um, a lot of guys got uh, upset about it. Um, and so it's definitely become something that's like when we can get enough guys to actually plan a sufficient trip, um, they get excited about it. Um, so that's uh, been pretty great. What, and what was the second question? And for you, what did it do for you personally in terms of uh, doing this kind of, just performing this kind of just act of kindness? Um, well, for, for me personally, it was just uh, rewarding. Um, like I said, taking her up there and seeing her get really excited. But um, I think something else that happened um, was after the story went, uh, the story got some attention, um, and after that happened, um, I uh, was actually receiving emails from uh, graduate brothers or alumni of our fraternity that have um, daughters or sons with cerebral palsy, and they were telling me how they appreciate this, how it means a lot. Um, I've actually met a graduate brother here in the Little Rock area um, that has a daughter with cerebral palsy, and he just talked about how um, it really means a lot, and it really sticks to what our fraternity is supposed to be when we do things like this. So um, to me, it's meant quite a bit. Well, what a great story, and thank you, Diaja, for coming on, and thank you, Benji, as well. It's our random act of kindness story of the week, and we do these every week, and this is as good as it gets. And for anybody who's listening and has an idea or a judgment about this generation, I promise you there are stories after stories. I know here at Ole Miss, I watch what the young people do in terms of charity drives, raising money for, for, for the poor, raising money for kids, teaching literacy. I'm humbled to see those, those young people do what they do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, thank you, Benji. Thank you, Diaja, for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. You bet. And uh, Godspeed to both of you. And by the way, if you want to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the unique voice of Jerry Garcia. And on this day in history, in 1995, Jerry Garcia passed. And I'd been to any number of Grateful Dead shows. I could not call myself a big fan until I actually went. I was a big Bob Dylan fan. I went to see Dylan open for the dead. And Bob Dylan didn't open for anybody. So if he wanted to submit himself to going on the road with the Grateful Dead for a while, and Tom Petty had, and all of my heroes had, I thought, I'm missing something. And so I dragged myself to the dead, and then I got it. I figured it out. And they were one of those bands you had to go see to understand. Their records are sometimes incomprehensible, but their, their live performances weren't. And he was an American musician best known for that lead guitar work, singing and songwriting in this band that everybody had an opinion about. And though he disavowed the role, Garcia was viewed by many as the leader or spokesman of the group. But he, he didn't ever want to be considered that. It's just that the media had to have somebody to appoint as that, as that role, and so they did. And it was just eight days after his 53rd birthday. He was found dead in his room in a rehabilitation clinic, the cause of death, a heart attack. The Dead was formed in 65 in Palo Alto, California. The band is known for its unique and eclectic styles. Fused elements of country, folk, bluegrass. You heard a raggae beat in the entry song. Uh, rock, jazz, psychedelic, space rock. All of it to appease multi, a multi-ethnic crowd that followed him. And it wasn't just, in the end, it wasn't just white folks. I remember seeing Santana open for the Dead, one of my favorite guitar players, and I think one of the greats of all time, who just loved and worshipped the ground the dead walked on. And seeing that show, you saw a very different Grateful Dead than seeing Willie Nelson, who I adore, touring with the dead. So everybody wanted to tour with his band. Jerry's ancestors on his father's side were from Spain. His mother's ancestors were Irish and Swedish. He was born in San Francisco on August 1st, 1942. And now we're going to play you some clips from the man himself, as we so often do. We just played again the Frank Sinatra hour where we heard from Frank in his own words about his life, the boy from Hoboken who never saw himself making it in the big city and finally getting to sing New York, New York, owning the joint. Here, Jerry Garcia was asked a question you often hear in interviews with musicians. What were your early influences? Garcia goes on to reluctantly answer that question. Uh, do you really, want, you, you really want to hear that? Oh. Uh, well, I, I had lots... I had eclectic influences, let's put it that way. I, I, I heard virtually every kind of music. My father was a musician, you know. My mother was a, was a, um, a coloratura, uh, you know, soprano. And uh, I just, you know, I mean, I heard every kind of music. I, my mother, my grandmother loved uh, country music, uh, the Grand Ole Opry, and Harry Owens and his Royal Hawaiians. <laughs> I mean, I heard all kinds of things. My ears were full of music, you know. So I plus the popular music of the time, the '40s and '50s, you know, when I was growing up. But I was at the the inception of rock and roll. I listened to rhythm and blues. I had an older older brother who was a rhythm and blues nut, and so I got rhythm and blues from him. And then rock and roll, as it developed in the '50s, uh, was like my music. That was my native music, so to speak, and uh, that was the thing that made me want to play was rock and roll. The first thing I heard when I heard the electric guitar and Chuck Berry and all the great, you know, licks, the rock and roll licks and, and just the sound of the electric guitar. I thought, like, I really want to do that. And I got my first electric guitar when I was 15 and that was it. And that was it. Garcia goes on to explain more on his early musical influences that went from playing the banjo 
to listening to the Beatles. The first thing I got really serious about in the sense of uh, being rigorous uh, was the five-string banjo. And I, I, I heard bluegrass music, and that, 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 that got to be something very important to me. And uh, so I, I swung off into that for four or five years and, and really started to work hard, hard at the five-string banjo. And that's where I slowed records down, and, you know, I wanted it to sound exactly right, you know, not just approximately right. And uh, I did that for a while. And then, then the the rock and roll wave came up, you know, with the Beatles and stuff like that. And hey, that looks like it'd be fun to do. And besides, I know this music, you know. Uh, and so, having a preference for the kind of more um, like the Chicago sound, the blues sound, the martial chess sound, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, our band, when we started a band, it was kind of more like the Rolling Stones, say. In so far as it was that that kind of music, and here Jerry Garcia talks about how the Grateful Dead formed as a collection of friends who could play, and a frontman Ron Pigpen McKernan on keyboards, harmonica, and vocals. The Grateful Dead uh, is really a collection of friends, people that were around at the time, and uh, and who played some. You know, I mean, not everybody was really, really. Uh, the, in the, when the Grateful Dead first started, we were called the Warlocks. We used to we we had one strong suit. We had Pigpen in the band, and he was this guy from Palo Alto whose father had been a, a rhythm and blues disc jockey. So he, for him, the blues was was very natural, uh, and he played harmonica, uh, uh, and he sang really well, you know. And uh, he really had no real wish to be a performer. We sort of forced him into it because we knew he could do it. And uh, so he was kind of the front man for the band. He he was he was our he was our powerhouse guy, and the rest of us could play better than him, but he could sing better than uh, or anybody else. So that he that he got to be the front man for the band. And Garcia goes on to explain how, in the early days of the Dead, they ended up playing so many local shows in the Bay Area they were all able to quit their day jobs. We ended up kind of uh, playing the divorcees clubs up and down the Bay Area, you know, down the peninsula and. East Bay and San Francisco. We ended up playing Broadway in San Francisco, which was about as far as you could go as a band in those days. You know, we had uh, we were working for the local uh, uh, agent, the guy that booked all the bands in the Bay Area, and worked with the union. This guy did. His name was Al King, and he used to book the strippers and dog acts and magicians and anything you can think of. You know, he was like the guy in the Bay Area, and so we were doing that. That's that was our circuit. We played uh, typically. We played six nights a week, five five sets a night. That was what we did. We just did it and did it and did it, and then and we we got we got good doing. It. I mean, it was, it was a great way to get good, and we love. We were young enough to love it, you know. And it was also we made enough so we could quit our day jobs, you know. That was what we did. That happened immediately. Yeah, it didn't happen immediately, but my goodness, what an opportunity! And later on, they would go on to sell countless number of records, and ultimately, in came the drugs, and in came the psychedelic era. Garcia talked about the acid tests the band started playing at. The acid tests were a series of parties held by author Ken Casey in the San Francisco Bay Area during the mid-1960s, centered entirely around the use of and advocacy of LSD. We were already, you know, like burning out on the professional level that was available to us about the time the, the acid test came to our attention. But we were already from Palo Alto. We all knew Kesey, and we all knew friends that, of ours that were involved with him. 
we'd all take an ass in ourselves. And so it seemed natural to go, we got invited, actually, to, to one of the, these parties. This is before they were acid tests, even. There was just parties. And we got invited to one of these parties. We went down there. We plugged all our stuff in and played for about a minute. <laughs> and then we all freaked out. <laughs> but we made a good impression on everybody in that minute, you know. So we, we were invited to the next one. And so we just started playing at, at these things. They were great fun. For, and they were very liberating for us because, after all, I mean, we'd come, we'd come to our... Uh, like Sunday night shows, that, you know, and after having spent the day stoned on acid up in the woods somewhere, and we come down to the bars and play, you know, Sunday night, it was like, you know, <laughs> we were playing like sort of maliciously. <laughs> and you're listening to Jerry Garcia. He died this day in history in 1995. By the way, we don't advocate you take an LSD, but we're not going to leave these things out of the stories that make and shape men. Any more than we'll leave Jesus Christ out of Jackie Robinson's life story, we will not leave LSD out of the Grateful Deads. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dwight Yoakam's cover of Truckin'. And we're going to get to some of the great artists who covered some of the great work of Jerry Garcia, who didn't consider himself much of an artist, let alone much of a songwriter. Well, you're going to find out that a lot of people had a very different opinion about that. Some very serious songwriters, some of the best across so many different idioms and artistic styles. But now we want to get back to Jerry's voice himself, and Jerry talking about and telling stories about Jerry. And here... Garcia tells a bizarre but entertaining story that took place in the Watts, California neighborhood after being up all night with Neil Cassidy, a major figure of the beat generation of the 1950s and the psychedelic and countercultural movements of the 1960s when they ran into a stop sign while driving a bus. We drove the bus over to the Watts Towers uh, for uh, a minute or two and we got out and looked at them, you know, and we were, you know, it's dawn. We went over to Waby Gravy's house, which was down in like... Oh, off of Western, you know, way the hell off somewhere funny in Los Angeles. And they had a little house, and we had the bus there, and a bunch of us were sitting on the lawn, and we're all kind of crunched from being up all night, stoned on acid. You know, it's like the dawn is Sunday morning now. The dawn, and, and the bus is parked across the street from our point of view. We're on the lawn, and it's Sunday morning early, early, and... Uh, Here's Neil, you know, and he's he's ripped his shirt off. He has no shirt on now, and now he's, he's no shirt, no shoes, and these these funky old chinos they always have. They're always like just about to fall off, you know. And he's first of all, he, he George Walker is driving the bus, so George George is driving the bus, George, and and Neil is like the guy directing him into the parking place, you know, <laughs> you know, a little to the left, a little to the right. He's doing it all with signals, and he he directs him right into a a stop sign, an arterial stop sign, it knocks it, it shears it off, boom, the stop sign falls down. So then Neil gets up, so then the bus is parked, and Neil gets up and he's got the stop sign, you know, and he's like kind of trying to put it, make it stand up, you know. 
And so he's there with this stop sign, and down the street come like two really straight little old ladies. You know, they're on their way to church Sunday morning, you know. And here's Neil. He's like the cosmic village drunk, you know what I mean? He's like, and he's got the stop sign, you know. <laughs> they're, they're trying not to see him, you know. And he's doing this whole, whole series of uh, kind of like, good morning, ma'am, <laughs> you know, kind of pantomime, you know, this extravagant thing all the time with, he would kind of like stand up the stop sign and then walk away from it and start to fall and he'd grab it just as I'm about to hit, you know, and he, all this stuff happening, it was like amazingly great. It was just beautiful, perfect timing, you know, and it's just extraordinarily beautiful, you know, and he, he, his, the way his body moved, the way he looked and everything like that was just absolutely, his face is so expressive, he would go through millions of expressions, just millions of them. And just this whole body language and everything it was so communicative. It was just amazing. It was I I, I was dying. I thought I was going to die. It was so hilarious. It was so and it, it was absolutely perfect. You know, it was like a little silent movie, a silent ballet. You know, in the morning, it lasted about maybe a minute and a half. You know, two minutes, but it was perfect. You know, it was like a perfect moment. It was just great. And by the way, this kind of irreverence, uh, this was everything that we all came to know about Garcia. And by the way, what happened with the career of the band is that the counterculture in the Bay Area soon became mainstream and lifted the dead into the mainstream. So go figure. You never know when the counterculture becomes the culture. And by the way, Cash's rebuttal was actually, at the time, Cash became the countercultural figure. Go figure. And he used to be the countercultural figure who became the culture and then became the countercultural figure all over again. And that's the story of music very often. Go figure. Here's Jerry Garcia talking about going out into America on tour and how not everyone was quite ready to accept a traveling group of hippie freaks. The audiences caught on. Always, they always caught on. The people in the world, you know, were like, not here, you don't. You know, we walk into a, like a, you know, a Holiday Inn or, you know, someplace to say, oh, no, you know, not here, you know. <laughs> and that, we got that kind of reaction the first couple of years we were out, you know, it was like, because people were used to seeing freaks then, you know, and that was still a big novelty, you know. So that was fun for us because it was the last of the, the last chance you had to shock people <laughs> just by the way you looked, just by the way you were, you know. You didn't even have to think about it or work at it at all. You could just walk down the street and people would go, oh, my God, you know. That was fun. That was we we got in on the last of that probably. Uh, the, the the music uh, music well the Grateful Dead has always been like a, a very much very chancy musical experience. And back then, what we were doing had the the nature of it was that some nights it would be just awful and some nights it would be wonderful, <laughs> you know. And and if people caught us on an awful night, they went away going, "What was that?" You know. And if they caught us on a wonderful night, they enjoyed it and they came back again. You know, it's like totally. A roll of the dice, you know, we, something we never had any control of. We still don't have any control of, over it, but now our bad nights are, are accomplished. You know, now we, could, now we can at least sound decent, you know, if we, don't, if, we don't, if we were not experiencing authentic inspiration. If we're experiencing authentic inspiration, then something magical sort of takes over. But if we're not, now we can at least sound professional, you know, it's not just in tune, you know, everything is like it's supposed to be, you know, it's, a, it's an okay performance. And by the way, this band would go on to sell over 35 million albums worldwide. And the band would take home $52 million from their farewell concert tour alone. The Wall Street Journal had once written them up as the world's most efficient corporation. Go figure, you're listening to the man who, by all accounts, led that band. 
Only in America, folks. Garcia talks here about how the band always had trouble picking what songs to play, how they decided who played what instrument, and how in the end he didn't think anything he'd written could be considered art. We've always had a problem with deciding what to play. We, we've never been able to decide what to play at all. You know? So back then, we were much more free form because we, we, we just were not able to decide what to play. So somebody would just start something. And uh, the way we've handled it since then is that we, we still can't decide what to play, but, uh, <laughs> but now at least we have a lot of stuff to choose from. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's a default situation, you know what I mean? It's like somebody in the band's got to, you know, it's like one of those things where, well, who's going to play bass? The guy that plays guitar, worst. <laughs> That's the way it is in most <laughs> bands, you know. There's like certain things. So uh, this, the writing, writing songs got it was a default thing, you know. But all of us do some writing, so, so that, that, I didn't, never felt that bad about it. But for me, it's one of those things like a craft, you know. It's like uh, throwing a pot, you know. It, it, it's a craft. You, 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 there's a certain craft to it. It's not, uh, for me, uh, I don't know whether my songwriting arises to the level of art. There's one or two songs I think I've written, and Hunter and I have written, that I think are truly wonderful. And, uh, but, you know, whether anybody else thinks that, I don't know. Well, Elvis Costello, Los Lobos, Dwight Yoakam, Jane's Addiction, and Lyle Lovett decided to record some of their favorite Grateful Dead songs, and they would only say to Jerry, we humbly disagree. Let's take a listen to Lyle Lovett's cover of a song he wished he'd written, Friend of the Devil. Trail by twenty hounds. I didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. I set out running, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. If I get home before daylight, I just might get some sleep tonight. devil and he loaned me 20 bills I spent the night in Utah in a, a cave up in the hills I set out running but I take my time a friend of the devil is a friend of mine if I get home before daylight I just might get some sleep tonight And here in this last clip, in this celebration of Jerry's life, and that's Jerry Garcia, who died on this day in history in 1995. And by the way, pick up that record and listen to the rest of that story, because it's a story song, like a great Guy Clark song. Jerry goes on here to describe the people in The Grateful Dead as pathologically anti-authoritarian, which, by the way, made them quintessentially American, and how this is what formed the sound they created. The people in the Grateful Dead are, are uh, pathologically anti-authoritarian. So, uh, so it's just you know, maybe nobody can tell anybody what to do ever under any circumstances. So, uh, so that pr- produces a certain amount of. Uh, also, if you ask somebody to play something, they'll never play it. Uh, so, 
<laughs> it produces a kind of uh, music music by uh, by confluence, you know, or uh, by by friction or by opposites, by uh, by uh, you know, it's it's conflicted. It's it's. Uh, and that makes it interesting. It has a great deal of tension, you know, because everybody plays so differently from each other. I mean, it's like uh, nothing on this earth will make me play like Bob, you know. Nothing on this earth will ever make me play like Bob. And I'll be damned if I'm going to play like Phil, you know what I mean? It's like, you know what I mean? It's one of those kind of things. Every, each one of us experiences some version of that, you know. And it's, just, it's not even something we consciously do. We just do it. It's like... Is, it's as, as pure as mother's milk, you know what I mean? It's pure innocence. Indeed, and that's, I think, what people responded to right there. This is Lee Habib, unfettered. We tried to get it as straight as possible. Jerry Garcia, a life in words, in his own words and his music as we go out. This day in history, Jerry Garcia died in 1995. I know that notion just crossed my mind. 